Okay, good day, mate. Forty here. Let's switch over to Tucker Carlson. Let's see what he has to say on this fine Tuesday afternoon, day three of Vouch Nationalism. Good evening and welcome to Tucker Carlson tonight. It was a week ago today that a deranged teenager called Salvador Ramos murdered 19 children and two teachers in an elementary school in Texas. You know this because we've had seven days of full saturation coverage and it's all deserved. Given that, it's amazing what we still don't know about what happened that day. Let's start just because it's the most obvious with how the shooter could possibly have afforded the firearms he used. Salvador Ramos was 18 years old. He worked part-time at the drive-thru at a local Wendy's. Yet police say he had at least $4,000 of brand new weapons, including two AR-15 rifles, 1,600 rounds of 5.56 ammunition, a ballistic vest, and 60 magazines, including two. One of Ramos's rifles was a high-end model manufactured by a company called Daniel Defense. According to a receipt that Ramos posted in a private message, that gun cost $2,000, and he paid in full. Now, Ramos could have bought effectively the very same rifle at any gun store for a third of the cost. But apparently, to Ramos, price was no object. That's pretty weird. If police know where Ramos got the money to buy one of the most expensive AR-15s on the market, they're not telling us. Nor, for that matter, have they explained why they lied about the most basic facts of the shooting. For the first 24 hours, they told us that a school resource officer fired at the gunman. He, quote, engaged Ramos. But they must have known at the time they said it that that was not true. They must have known the, re the resource officer was not even at the school when Ramos arrived. But they told us otherwise. Why'd they do that? And by the way, how long was Ramos outside the school firing his gun at people at a nearby funeral home before he went inside and killed children? That seems like a fairly simple question, certainly an important question. Last week, authorities told us that Ramos was outside the school for 10 to 12 minutes. Here's the claim. We got a crash and a man with a gun. And then you have responding officers. That's what it is. If it's 12 minutes from 11.30 to 11.40, that's the information we have. 12 minutes from 11.30 to 11.40. That's the information we have, quote. But that information is clearly wrong because 11.30 to 11.40 is not 10 minutes. The timeline matters. So what's the real timeline? Well, on Friday, the director of Texas DPS came up with a brand new timeline. Here it is. 1128, the suspect vehicle crashes into the ditch, as previously described. The teacher runs to the room 132 to retrieve a phone, and that same team teacher walks back to the exit door, and door remains propped open. At 1133, the suspect begins shooting into room 111 or 112. It's not possible to determine from the video angle that we have at this point in time. So actually, and that was the director of public safety in Texas, it was only five minutes that Ramos was outside shooting at people. OK, but here's the key takeaway from that statement. Here's what they want you to believe. The back door to the school was open because a teacher at the school left it open after going outside to retrieve a phone. So it's the teacher's fault that Ramos was able to get inside. That's what they said on Friday. But this, too, appears to be untrue. The Houston Chronicle is reporting tonight that surveillance footage of the school shows that the teacher slammed the door after running back inside. And of course, that would make sense since by this point, Ramos was firing his rifle and that same teacher was using the phone in question to make a panicked call to 911. No one disputes that. 
So why did the authorities tell us otherwise? And for that matter, why did they initially deny that the on-scene police commander ordered cops to stand down and remain outside as children were being shot to death inside the school? On Thursday, a spokesman for Texas DPS called that account a rumor, quote, but there was videotape to show that it was true. It actually happened. So the next day, forced by the videotape, Texas DPS admitted the rumors were true. Watch. What happens when the officer is to try and break either that door or another door get inside that classroom? None at that time. Why? Why? The, the on-scene commander at the time believed that it had transitioned from an active shooter to a barricaded subject. Obviously, obviously, you know, based upon the information we have, there were children in that classroom that were at risk, and it was, in fact, still an active shooter situation and not a barricaded subject. But that's not really an explanation, of course, because no one disputes that everyone on the scene, including police, knew that Ramos had weapons, was firing them at people to kill people, and was inside the school with children. No one disputes that. So why did heavily armed police units decide not to stop Salvador Ramos from executing children? Now, it's not finger pointing to ask that question. These are very complicated circumstances. People are under immense pressure. People make mistakes. But we are making long-term policy decisions based on the specifics of what happened last week in Uvalde. Politicians across this country are calling for militarizing America's elementary schools. And yet they can't answer why the military force effectively outside this elementary school refused to stop the killing. So this massacre could have been prevented at some point. It was not prevented. Why was that? We should know the answer, but don't hold your breath. No one in power seems anxious to hold themselves accountable for what happened in Uvalde. And amazingly, and this is so perverse it's hard to believe it's true, but it is, some seem determined to make future school shootings more likely. In California, the state assembly just voted to end the requirement, the longstanding requirement that was put in place after school shootings, that schools alert law enforcement when students, quote, attack, assault, or physically threaten school officials. That's no longer in place. And according to the Democratic Party, that's a win for equity. We know this because the sponsor of the bill, a California state senator called Stephen Bradford, said so. Here's what he told the Daily Caller, quote, black students, Latinx students, students of color and students with disabilities are disproportionately referred to law enforcement cited and arrested, end quote. So too many Latinx students in wheelchairs apparently are being blamed for school shootings. So there's no more violence reporting in California schools at all. So how does that help prevent the next school shooting? Well, of course, it doesn't. But it's starting to seem like helping prevent school shootings is not really the point of this exercise. Amassing more power is the point. And we know this from what's happening north of us. Canada's Botox dictator, Justin Trudeau, wasted no time in using the tragedy in the U.S. to his own political advantage in Canada. Now, Uvalde is more than 2,000 miles from Ottawa. But because of what Salvador Ramos was allowed to do in Texas, Canadians are no longer allowed to protect themselves. 
Justin Trudeau has introduced a bill that would ban Canadian citizens from buying, selling, and transferring handguns within their own country. Again, handguns were not the cause of the shooting in Uvalde. Uvalde is nowhere near Canada. And yet, Justin Trudeau is using that tragedy to disarm anyone who disagrees with him. By the way, that law would empower courts to confiscate guns from people, even if they've not committed a crime. Watch Justin Trudeau announce this power grab. And as you do watch, pay special attention to the masked toadies behind him nodding in unison. We're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer, or import handguns anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns. What's actually happening here is that people like Justin Trudeau know that their rule is illegitimate. They know perfectly well how resented they are, and they spend an awful lot of time thinking about civil unrest. You probably don't. You live in a democracy, so you don't imagine that anyone needs to be disarmed for political reasons. But people like Justin Trudeau can feel the deep resentment aimed at them, and they are fully intent on disarming the population. Now, we reached out to Justin Trudeau's office today about this new law. We wanted to know if Trudeau will apply these laws to himself. That's always the first and most important test of, sinc of sincerity. If it's good for me, it ought to be good for you, too, and vice versa. So in this case, will Justin Trudeau's state-funded bodyguards be relinquishing their handguns? And how about their banned AR-15s? But of course, we're not allowed to know the answer to that question because he's in power and we're not. Quote, we do not comment on matters related to the prime minister's security, his office responded. Meaning, of course not. Justin Trudeau isn't that stupid. He's going to continue to protect his own family. You're just not going to be allowed to protect yours in Canada. Now, here in the United States, as always, Democrats are watching very carefully what Trudeau is up to as they plan our future here. And already the rhetoric of the Democratic Party has changed for years. Democrats, Joe Biden, his supporters of the media have talked about banning AR-15s, the so-called weapons of war, which are not, in fact, used by any military. But weapons of war have been their focus. Watch. The venom of the haters and their weapons of war Assault-style weapons that are weapons of war. And, and purchase these weapons of war. To get these weapons of war. Finally ridding our streets of weapons of war. What we should be doing is taking these weapons of war out of the hands of civilians. Because they see what these weapons of war do on the street. An assault weapon is a weapon of war with no place, no place in a civil society. They wouldn't know what end the bullet comes out of. They know nothing about this topic. They don't even know the basic crime stats. In the United States, rifles kill fewer people every year than fists or knives do. There's no effort afoot to ban knives or fists. But weapons of war have long been their focus, meaning AR-15s, the single most popular self-defense rifle in the United States. Self-defense is the point. On Sunday, Congressman Adam Kinzinger has decided, and says it out loud, that in order for him to feel safe, we're going to need to confiscate your rifle because he feels unsafe. Watch. Congressman, you do still oppose a ban on the kind of assault weapons that were used in the shooting. Can you explain why private citizens need weapons of war? 
Look, I have opposed a ban, uh, you know, fairly recently. I, I think I'm open to a ban now. Can, can you explain, Congressman, why private citizens need weapons of war? Now, CNN anchors need to be surrounded by bodyguards with weapons of war because they're important. But you and your family? No, you don't need weapons of war. So for years, it's been about the AR-15. But things are changing. Joe Biden is now calling for a ban on the ubiquitous nine millimeter round. Watch this. A nine millimeter bullet blows the lung out of the body. So the idea of these high caliber weapons is that there is simply no rational basis for it in terms of about self-protection, hunting. I mean, I guess, and remember, the Constitution, the Second Amendment, was never absolute. You couldn't buy a cannon when the Second Amendment was back. So there's a guy who can't even recognize his own wife of 40 years in public lecturing us about what the rational basis is for this or that. Quote, there's simply no rational basis for the 9mm round in terms of self-protection. Well, of course, the opposite is true. The 9mm is the main self-protection round in the United States, along with the 5.56, the round used in the AR-15. Both of them are small rounds. People use them to protect their families. And if you take them away, Americans will no longer be able to defend themselves in the middle of a crime wave that was wholly manufactured by the same people who are trying to strip your guns from you. And that's, of course, the point. This is a power grab. And you can be certain that it is a power grab and not an effort to make this a safer country because the people who are calling for it are exempting themselves from its requirements once again. That is the acid test. If you're for a law, will it apply to you? Do Michael Bloomberg's bodyguards carry the dreaded 9mm or 223 rounds? Do they have high-capacity magazines? Do Nancy Pelosi's bodyguards, which you pay for, do Mitch McConnell's bodyguards carry those rounds? Well, we wanted to know. Why wouldn't we want to know? Why don't we have a right to know? So we emailed all three of their offices today. And unlike, we have to say, Justin Trudeau's office, none of them even bothered to reply to us. So obviously they won't be disarming their own bodyguards. They'll keep their own weapons of war. In the meantime, they'll continue to pass legislation against weapons they know nothing about. They've been doing this for decades. We did a documentary on this, actually, and we spoke to probably the person who knows more about self-defense weapons than any living American, Hickok 45, one of the most popular figures on YouTube and truly an expert on the use of firearms for self-defense. Here's part of what he told us. And, and of course, it has the, the famous uh, Tucker Carlson barrel shroud on it. Barrel shroud. Hickok 45 is referring to Congresswoman Carolyn McCarthy of New York, who famously didn't understand the firearm she was trying to ban. Do you know what a barrel shroud is? I actually don't know what a barrel oh, shroud okay, is. Because it's in your it's a legislation. shoulder thing that goes up. No, it's not. You're so a barrel shroud the... makes the, the rifle more deadly, right? <laughs> yeah, really. Shrouds that barrel. <laughs> you know, a lot of what people come up with that do not know firearms. They just uh, do not like them. They hate them. And, you know, so they're looking for reasons to hate them. They, they don't know anything about the cartridges. A bullet is dangerous. Let's, let's face it. A hammer, a chainsaw, a ladder, a car. They're potentially dangerous. Hickok 45 joins us now. We're happy to have him. Hickok 45, thanks so much for coming on. So it seems like the rhetoric has changed. If the president and people around him 
are now calling for banning nine millimeter. Okay, so Tucker Carlson just gave a statistic that seemed fishy to me. He said that uh, more people die from hands and fists and, and feet and knives than rifles. That didn't seem right, but according to FBI statistics, that is correct. There are more people dying from personal weapons, all right, hands, fists, feet, than die from rifles. But overall, of all homicides reported, according to the FBI, 77% are committed with firearms, right? Only 4% of homicides overall are from hands, fists, and feet. So the statistic is a little, little unclear. Uh, maybe not quite as dramatic as Tucker Carlson wanted to present. Look, it's day three of vouch nationalism. Press one in the chat if you vouch for vouch nationalism. Would I vouch for Tucker Carlson? I would vouch that he's the most interesting uh, pundit on TV. Uh, I would vouch for that. I wouldn't vouch for the probity of his claims. I wouldn't vouch for his good judgment. I think sometimes he is brave and true and a lot of the time he is shocky and schlocky okay so what is the news and this is this is the best summary that i've ever seen it's the passage of bureaucratically recognized events through administrative procedures so the news uh, as we get it from the major networks and from the major newspapers right it's the passage of bureaucratically recognized events. You get elections, you get release of unemployment data, you get release of crime statistics, right, by bureaucratic institutions, right? And that these bureaucratically recognized events, right, they, they pass through a passage of time that's represented by administrative procedures. So the news loves to report the results of court cases the findings of commissions, the words of politicians, the words of bureaucrats, new rulings by courts and bureaucrats and uh, politicians. The news, all right, is the passage of bureaucratically recognized events through administrative procedures. Now, this doesn't have to be the news, right? So there was a great comparison of the New York Times in June 1982 to join Didion's coverage of the same events in El Salvador during this narrow period. So the New York Times correspondent was Raymond Bonner. He filed 13 stories on deadline in June, and he collected facts by attending public ceremonies and press conferences. He read newspapers and magazines. He listened to the radio, or he read CIA-supplied transcripts of radio broadcasts. Then he made phone calls or sought personal interviews with officials, bureaucrats, politicians to get their responses made by other officials. Now, by contrast, Joan Didion kept a running list of random notes and personal observations throughout the month. So she attended to information from her own sight, smell, hearing, and touch. So her written and oral sources are extremely diverse. So how do you primarily find out about the world around you? Do you get it from the passage of these bureaucratic procedures, bureaucratically recognized events through administrative procedures, or do you trust your own lying eyes? Now, the geographic source of news for most of Raymond Bonner's dispatches for the New York Times was San Salvador and Washington, D.C., the political capitals in the business of dispensing the official information. 
Now, by contrast, Joan Didion participated in informal and formal social gatherings. She absorbed facts during daily transactions, such as going to the drugstore or restaurant and quasi-official sites such as the morgue and unofficial sites like a number of neighborhoods. So Raymond Bonner of the New York Times relied almost exclusively upon facts provided for them by bureaucrats, right? The number of dead, number of disappeared, number of land titles, of votes, names, the land for the tillers program, the election, the president. Joan Didion, on the other hand, specifically noted the uselessness of this kind of fact in El Salvador. She said all the f numbers in El Salvador tend to materialize and vanish and rematerialize in different form as if numbers denoted only the use of numbers, an intention, a wish, a recognition that somewhere, someone, for whatever reason, needed to hear the ineffable expressed as a number. Raymond Bonner's accounts were disjointed. Now, but everyone thinks of the virtues of traditional reporting versus the techniques of new journalism, it's impossible to ignore that corporate news outlets exist primarily to disseminate the passage of bureaucratically recognized events through administrative procedures. So when event X happens, why is it that we tend to always get certain narratives, right? If we have a tornado, if we get a fire, right, it's because of global warming. If we have a school shooting, it's because of a lack of gun control, right? Whatever the event, there seems to be a pre-existing narrative that the media fits everything into. Like, why are these narratives the media's default in times of tragedy? And more importantly, where do these narratives come from? Well, these narratives come from the experts, usually to be found at our most prestigious institutions. And so the conservative in me is struck by media narratives that they seem to always call for more government intervention into our lives. So Gerard Baker has a terrific column here in the Wall Street Journal, political narratives of the media's default in times of tragedy. Every bad event can supposedly be fixed or ameliorated by a new government tax or program or regulation. Why is this? So a crippling fallacy that characterizes our modern media is the idea that every event that rises to the level of news must connote some wider social or political crisis that could only be remedied by increased government intervention. So tragedies, natural disasters, acts of unspeakable evil aren't simply to be reported and explained for what they are, products of individual will or negligence, irremediable human evil, or some complex set of scientific interactions. No, each event from lethal accidents to vicious murders to category five hurricanes is immediately sorted into its pre-labeled moral narrative file, each one full of similarly useful sententious parables. So great news guys, as freedom of speech has decreased, right? The realm of freedom of speech has decreased the realm of moralism has increased, right? So we can no longer freely discuss events. We can no longer just freely discuss the, the facts of events as they are in the news media presentations. No, what we get are moralistic narratives. Isn't that great? So we've moved to just, just what are the facts to no, Facts are insufficient. Reporting is dull. What we need is interpretation. We are going to give you the moral narrative so that you can understand what's happening, right? Ukraine, good guy, Russia, bad guy, right? So every news event seems to become a prop in the larger drama that is constantly being written for us by the preachy Puritans who now control the news. They have these convenient plot devices to illustrate the virtue of their cause and the malevolence of that of their critics, but their cause is not really their cause. Their cause is given to them by their social superiors, the 
academics at our most elite institutions. So the mass murder of happy fourth graders and teachers celebrating the last few days of the school year in Texas border town could almost stand as the definition of an inexplicable act of a single mind gone catastrophically astray. Right? There's a vast literature on the psychology of mass shootings, and mass shootings are overwhelmingly not ideological. And with each new atrocity, we get a little more nuanced understanding of the pathology that yields to it. But there's no elemental causal accounting for why some young men's moral compass has been so corrupted, they think it is heroic to shed the blood of innocent children. But the unfathomable is not something that our media masters can tolerate. An unsurpassing self-assurance in their own moral and intellectual wisdom isn't allowed to be punctured by the complexity of daily life. So they maintain the patina, the illusion of omniscience or knowingness, that they must fit the story into one of their narratives. So the story ceases to be a complex act of mental derangement and becomes instead a blindingly obvious case that we need more gun control. And I'm not automatically opposed to more gun control. So we get this morally indignant, intellectually tendentious approach to almost all news reporting now. So the media holds up the brutal murder of 10 African Americans this month in Buffalo is indicative of the white nationalism that's sweeping the country, that, that holds America in its grip, right? And uh, many journalists want to practically ban all journalism you know, other than the mainstream, right? These events in Buffalo, they're primarily the fault of people like Fox News and uh, conservative talk show hosts. We had the killing by a police officer, a black man in Minneapolis two years ago, George Floyd, and uh, supposedly became the exemplar of this ongoing war by police officers across the country against black people. And every hurricane and forest fire, right, events that have been happening with random frequency for millennia, they're all now climatological evidence for the evil that we have done to the planet in the last half century. And any journalist who challenges this narrative is denounced and assigned his share of responsibility. So we have a path of hyperbole, distortion, and outright fabrication, but all the cues, where, where do they get their cues? They get them from our elite intellectuals at universities. So remember last year we had this media moral panic over the discovery of old graves of indigenous children at residential schools in Canada? Turns out they weren't mass graves, right? It wasn't some reminder about the continuing evil of uh, white people, right? So where do these narratives come from? Come from the academy. And so I want to share a few more thoughts from Stephen Turner's terrific 2013 book, The Politics of Expertise. But I was listening to Richard Spencer's recent phone call with his Substack subscribers. And they, this is the excerpt I'm going to play you. It's after 15 minutes of discussion of Holocaust denial and Holocaust uh, reductionism. Anyway, well, so here's so when, I, when, this, when this subject comes up, the narrative that I leave to people to redeem the past ones, as Nietzsche would put it, right, redeem the, 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 the explorers is to basically say, well, what else do you think would happen? Like this, this is like history moving forward and Europeans have a superior technology. And it's just like, what else would have happened? Like, of, of course, as history right. unfolds, this technologically superior people are going to expand. Yeah, I think have an population. Is better. And, and it's just like, this is just who we are. This is what humanity is. You think that Native Americans didn't also expand into other, their neighbors' lands and they didn't fight over land all the time. Like, like we, we are talking from a very privileged position on the modern era where we have, we don't have slavery anymore, mostly because we have machines doing everything for us. Like, can you imagine living back then and being desperate about like where your kids are going to freaking get their next meal from? 
you know? It's like, it's a, just a different time. So thinking of like the moral positions today, all these decades and centuries of moral development, and then retroactively applying our modern moral conceptions to ancestors from hundreds of years ago is just so stupid. It's such like an easy win as far as like, uh, like making yourself be like a moral paragon is concerned. It's just cheap, you know? And so like, yeah. when, I, when I put it in these terms, people kind of get it like, oh yeah, okay, I guess. That makes sense that of course this would happen because these people developed sailing technology in, in India. You know. the, um, the, I, what I believe is, uh, personally, the reason I think, very unfortunately, but it doesn't seem to be something that, it seems something you have to confront directly. And the reason I think that is because what you always run up against is people say, this ideology of pro-white, you know, whatever sentiment led to that back then. So it's going to lead to that now. And that's why, it's, and that's what you always run up against. Well, this, this is another, maybe it will. Maybe, well, maybe oh, my. Like, <laughs> our, our conception of white is well, not well, the same just, as what they I'm had just, before, right? Yeah, I, I'm just calling your bluff on that one. I mean, it's like, yeah, because I, I don't know what to say. As, as Jason was, was saying, like, oh, I was talking I about the we, politics, not the Native American. I know, I know, I, I know. Is that like we live in a very privileged time at this point, and and one of one of hard harm avoidance. Um, you know, uh, 150 years ago, or let's say 250 years ago, if you had children, you know, 30 to 50 percent of them would have died in childbirth. Now, if a child dies in childbirth, it's it's an unimaginable tragedy. People, it, it scars. I mean, we live in a very nice, comfortable age in America, at least in Western Europe, and it's But when I look at yeah. the population, I look at how they're mentally and physically unhealthy. Well, I, I, I get it, but don't let's not miss the point here. Oh yeah, we, right. we we live in a very particular time, and like I can easily imagine, maybe even in my lifetime, that there is some kind of technological economic collapse that causes the death of millions of people. This is how history works. Maybe if a pro-white regime rose to power, the outrage generated by its enemies would cause thousands or millions of dead bodies. I mean, I, I'm just saying history is a slaughter bench. Yeah. Yeah. So what makes uh, Richard Spencer superior to 99.5% of other alt-right pundits is that he has more self-awareness and more knowledge. So he's right. Nationalism is incredibly intense fuel. And this fuel can turn into a conflagration that leads to mass slaughter or it can lead into a conflagration that warms people and protects people and reduces mass slaughter. Nationalism in and of itself doesn't guarantee peace or slaughter. Depends on the situation. But I'm saying our ideology. Idea, I know, but like I am saying that to just describe our ideology as like inherently peaceful, it's just fucking gay. I mean, I'm sorry, this is like TRS. I, I hear TRS all over this stuff. Like it's gay. Like we just want this. We just, we're just nice guy, nationalists who, yeah, fuck that. You're, who knows what's going to happen? Matt we Barrett. Might... Yeah, well, exactly. Embrace gay. I, I totally, I gay totally see hell. your point. I totally Keep see your point. But trying... Yeah. I see your point, but like when trying to talk to, if you're Red Bill and Morning, which I know you're not a big fan of, but that's, I don't know, I don't know if that's the best line to leave. You know, well, of course people. you don't, you don't open with millions <laughs> not, of No, not open. <laughs> not, not open. I mean, say that. Okay. That's pretty good. Nice guy. Nationalism is gay. Uh, yeah, nationalism, religion, all sorts of ideologies have the potential to warm the heart. They also have the potential to blow things up. Uh, red flag warnings, red flag laws are only as good as the data. All right. So what about if we had some kind of hypothetical Google mass shooter profiling tool that would scan people's recent online history, purchases, school, employment, police, medical, and travel records. Maybe we could have a Google social stability matrix that examines data related to the subject's longer-term life pattern. Is he a stable, invested member of the community or adrift and unconnected? Well, I know a superior way of doing this. Vouch nationalism. 
where you're required to have at least 10 adults with clean criminal records who vouch for you before you can own a weapon or get a driver's license. So more data points are better than just one data point, right? More data points would make the red flag petition less of a shot in the dark and less of a menace to the law abiding. So a subject who rates a three might merit a welfare check. One who owns an eight might merit an immediate lookout order using network license plate readers and face recognition cameras. But why wait for a red flag petitioner to supply a name? Why not have an algorithm already looking for warning patterns that even a family member, school official, or employer might not see? The data exist. Private and public institutions already have their feet in this pool. The Uvalde School District was monitoring social media to identify budding student conflicts. So most crimes may not be stopped by these means, but uh, some of them may be, and uh, I'd be willing to give up a little bit of freedom if we could have a significant decrease in these kind of events. Okay, so Richard calls himself uh, very Nietzschean. He says he's the, uh, he, f he feels very much like Kurt Cobain. So here we go. Oh, yeah, we, we are faced like, <laughs> we are facing what we are facing is like a extremely dire situation for the human race is that because and of climate climate change or population all of it it's just an accumulation of catastrophes climate change a fertility crisis generally coming down so the, so the opposite of so population was a problem it got solved and now we have the opposite problem well i i think population can be a problem i mean i don't want to just pollute our oceans endlessly and endlessly create sprawl and so on. I mean, I, I think there are real issues with overpopulation, but I, I think the, the fertility issue is really only an issue due to the, uh, like the intelligence. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Like I, I, I don't mean to, I don't mean to jump on your back and, and counter signal all the time, but um, sure. no, you should, I like, yeah, but, you yeah. know, you know, like ocean pollution and all of that, you know, L London used to be the big smoke and it's now very clean. There used to be a lot of litter and now there's no litter. Um, you know, these, these things have kind of have a way of uh, fixing themselves through consensus um, yeah. to, to be a, a challenger. How are we heading towards catastrophe? Um, okay. Yeah. Dysgenics, definitely the white race. I definitely, my heart goes out to that, but how are we, head, how are we heading to catastrophe? The main thing you're, you, you're saying is dysgenics. Yeah. I, I think dysgenics is a component of it. I, I think global climate change effectively is, is a, is a very real thing and something that's unpredictable. We don't quite know what this is going to do. I think also technology, even though it might not always seem that way, technology is slowing down. And so yeah. like per capita innovation is collapsing and yes. even on like real terms. So it's kind of like, are we really going to be able to crack all of these nuts when we're becoming dumber? Maybe there are even kind of like inherent limits to the technology as we created it. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I think there are really serious problems and there, there is a problem of like a rising third world, rising tide of color, if you will. Like, how do we handle this? Um, mm. the, them wanting their place in the sun and so on. But so, I mean, all, I, all I'm saying is I, I guess I'm reacting to like any notions of like, we just want a happy homeland or something when it's like, that's happen. just, that's just platitudes. That, that's just like, you know, that, that, that's not a argument, so to speak. It, it's like, we're facing a catastrophe and we're certainly facing like a spiritual catastrophe. And so like, how do we get ourselves out of this? I think we need like radical thinking. And if it's just like, you know, I don't want any more Negroes in my neighborhood. Well, all right, you know, Richard, Richard, <laughs> go I, move I, to I, the fucking burbs. Richard, I totally agree. I totally agree. I don't, I don't have any Negroes in my, in my neighborhood, and I'm still, you know, um, extremely angsty about all this. I, I'm a virtual Kurt Cobain when it comes to the future of humanity.
Yeah, maybe uh, Richard Spencer's angst isn't primarily about the nature of reality. Maybe it's a lot more about the nature of uh, Richard Spencer. I am so mad. I am so fucking mad at these people. They don't do this to fucking me. We're going to fucking ritualistically humiliate them. I am coming back here every fucking weekend if I have to. Like, this is never over. I win. They fucking lose. That's how the world fucking works. Little fucking kites. They get ruled by people like me. Little fucking oxaroons. I fucking, my ancestors, fucking enslaved those pieces of fucking shit. I rule the fucking world. Those pieces of shit get ruled by people like me. They look up and see a face like mine looking down at them. That's how the fucking world works. We are going to destroy this fucking and again, I, I will make no bones about it. I, I truly despise the Turks. I absolutely would support a unified European effort to take back that near Asia entirely. And whatever happens to the Turks, I don't give a shit. I don't care about them. They're ugly and just appalling people who have no culture. I visited Turkey. I had been there and I was just, I began to just despise those people. Uh, we have this beautiful, like Hagia Sophia and so on, it, it's imprisoned with these, this is disgusting mosque, just this, this repulsive religion of Islam. I just, you know, it is a appalling place. It is an occupied territory. We should just take it from them. I don't give a flying fuck about the destiny of the Turkish people. We should rip Constantinople, entire Near Asia from them. We should throw every Turk into the ocean. I do not care about them. We should reestablish Byzantium. That is the absolute crown jewel of our civilization. That is just as important as Rome. That is just as important as Germany. That is just as important as France, London. That is our land. The white race should unify. I will only be satisfied. I will only know that the white race is back, that we are uh, once again, a powerful people when we unify and take back all of Eurasia. When I just think about the fact that Turks are, you know, occupying that land, that they have surrounded one of the great monuments of our civilization with these stupid minarets and there's all this shit, it just makes me entirely angry. So what's remarkable about these outbursts is that they are so representative of Richard, not that they're so contrary to who Richard is. Like, Listen to how he just wants to destroy people. Today. Sure, whatever. You know, I just well, get out of this kind Jason, of like uh, way of thinking. Jason, I want, I want to say um, you sound like an intelligent guy. And uh, yeah, good luck with what you're, you're, you're doing. Well, but uh, I'm simply just saying that like race, I mean, race doesn't always kind of stay as is. It's, it again, it's, like this, etern it's, etern it's this like eternally flowing river, right? So it is. it's only a matter of like what, what kind of direction so, is kind of directed towards consciously. I don't want biology constrained by, by the definitions of some like dude in America somewhere, like within his head. Like it's just, this is not appropriate. You know, like you have your concepts of what race is and you hold them dear. I, I'm happy for you. Like I don't, I don't share those concepts. I, I don't, okay, I don't but, think but, about it. Advocating, advocating for one's uh, Volk, is not um that that's not really radical that's kind of normal how about advocating for volk period jason are you, you know? pushing to create a new type of person to preserve an existing type i am pushing to create a new type of person i'm, I'm not interested in preserving anything because that's what progressives do when they try to like um on their own side is they try to create new types of people by mixing wow this sounds like apolloism I and mean, why can't the right do that i think that's already happening anyway do you also don't we also see i mean 
one of my big problems with the right is, and, and in particular, the white nationalist right, is that they're not really in support of white ideals or even the white race. They are in support of a particular branch of us. And we can look at that branch historically and religiously even, but like they're in support of a, a certain type of kind of low church white that resonates with like the second amendment and, you know, uh, goofball Christianity and so on. Like the white nationalist movement is not like acting on behalf of white people per se, because we are they're divided. Trying, they're trying and to they're, they're, hooligans. Well, <laughs> you could say yes, that charitably. But I, yeah, I, I think like, I, don't you see that part of our race is like, I don't, I'm just going to be as blunt as possible here. Don't you see that like a lot of our race is actually outmoded and defective? And I, I mean, to be really like, not, I, I don't know, really harsh about it. Maybe like a lot of the white race needs to be cast aside. I mean, like, who we are. Do, we, do we want to just like endlessly defend goofballs? This is what our movement is. You know, like, well, then, then we need to move forward and we're not going to be, it's like become who we are. I didn't just say we are who we are. Like become who you are, like that, there is a progressive energy in that. And it's like, we do want to be a higher stage of mankind. And that's going to, like, there are going to be a lot of people who really, like, in their bone marrow hate that because they know that we're moving past them. We are, like, the, the, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Boberts, we are going to cut them off from our race, and we are going to throw them into a ditch. Hell yeah. I mean, I, I just want to be as, I, I'm just going to be as rude as possible. This is, this is like, genocide. Totally, totally agree. Totally agree. And, and, like, and they are going to throw say? them into that because they know that we're moving past them. We are like the, the, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Boberts. We whoa, whoa, this, this doesn't sound very nice. There are going to be a lot of people who really, like in their bone marrow, hate that because they know that we're moving past them. We are like the, the, the Marjorie Taylor Greens and the Lauren Boberts. We are going to cut them off from our race and we are going to throw them into a ditch. Hell yeah. I mean, I, I don't <laughs> want to be as, I, I'm just going to be as rude as possible. This is, You're this is like all kind of shit that I want. Totally agree. Totally agree. Wow. wow, and, wow, wow, like, wow, wow. Did he just say he wanted to genocide idiots? And we're going to throw them into a ditch. Hell yeah. I mean, I, I don't <laughs> want to be as, I, I'm just going to be as rude as possible. This is, You're this is like all kind of shit that I want. Totally idiots. agree. You're going to genocide idiots. All right, this this is a public discussion Richard had two days ago. So after 15 minutes of discussing Holocaust denial, uh, he now has moved on to genociding idiots. Totally agree. And, and, like, and they, the are going, they are going to hate us, and they sense in their very bone marrow that that is what we want to do to them. And they, they will always oppose us. But the white nationalist movement is just dedicated to the endless survival and promotion of Marjorie Taylor Greene. That just is because what, she's white. That is what the, or the endless exactly. survival and promotion of any low-class person who can't raise the standards. But, but Richard, how do, you line, how do you line Marjorie Taylor Greene up with your own mother? What? Hardcore it's a type that I don't want to valorize. I, I know, I actually have, there are a couple of just idiot, I think there is some 
joke that my paternal grandfather said that if you shake but uh, how does he feel about the amish that's what i really want to know how does richard feel about the amish a family tree some bad apples <laughs> like every family tree has some imbecile cousin in it you know what i mean and especially mine so, yeah <laughs> <laughs> uh so it it is what it is and yeah there there's a kind of down home earthiness that i i like and resonate with you know like when you go hang out at a bar or something there is a kind of aggressive stupidity that is anti life i mean maybe i'm inflating marjorie taylor green beyond proportion there's an aggressive stupidity that's anti life i mean that would characterize a great deal of things that i've said publicly and a great deal of things that richard said publicly right uh this kind of aggressive stupidity is not just outside of us, it's also inside of us. But like, she isn't just like a waitress at a diner where someone who's like doing no wrong in many ways and it's just, you know, maybe kind of funky or eccentric or whatever, but, but ultimately she's not. She's wielding like a lot damaging. of power, yeah. She is aggressively trying to promote her ideals. I, I don't think we should valorize Unlike Richard, who doesn't aggressively try to promote his ideals. But she's just got so much power, guys. Marjorie Taylor Greene, just, she practically runs the, the universe along with Richard. ...these people. And, like, we do want to be a better race. And and just, there's always going to be... In so I, I didn't play the 15 minutes of Holocaust denial, but it just kind of gives you an insight into the psyche of many of Richard's staunchest supporters, right? That uh, this is what they're all about. Like when they have the opportunity to talk, that's what they want to talk about. And the Holocaust is, has ever diminishing influence uh, over the West, right? Fewer and fewer people think about it, reference it. But when you are aggressive in, in denying and minimizing it, what you do is that you turn the Holocaust into something that gets more public sympathy and discussion. So this crowd that Richard is appealing to very much like himself is, you know, largely self-destructive and they are strengthening the very thing that they're trying to diminish because they're so self-destructive, right? As the Holocaust steadily diminishes in importance to people by raising their denial, by passionately going for it, they're, they're raising the importance of the Holocaust and it's similar with everything else that they claim that they, they stand for. They're just making everything that they claim they believe in harder to attain. Antagonism within such a struggle. Like, there will be people who, like, are also in this struggle for life who want to see the white race move in a direction that is just totally opposed to, to what I want. You know, like, the, the fundamentalist, like... People in Tennessee who now have can legally, they, there's like a separate definition of marriage where they, they can like marry a 15-year-old and raise them in some like fundy community and basically be anti-science, goofy, closed-minded. They, they can kind of drag us back. Like, I, I think there's... You know, th th that's a horrible thing that someone gets married at 15. I, I would suspect that someone who married at 15 
uh, has kids by by age 17, 18, 90. They're far more mature than I am and probably far more mature than Richard Spencer is in many ways. Generally speaking, I think, yeah, 15 is way too early to get married. Uh, but I don't think it's a moronic choice as Richard believes. Like the Amish are reproducing and expanding. Yeah. Fuck them. I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm sorry. I am just like, I've, I've heard this from white nationals, like, oh, the Amish or whatever. Fuck the Amish. Yeah. Yes. F the Amish. I mean, what did they ever do for Israel? I mean, how intoxicated is Richard here? in the stream that he's releasing to the public it sounds like he's he's back on the booze yeah if i were if i were the president of the united states i would crush the amish i mean i i, I would actively crush them it's a uh, it's the because they it's are a, backward yeah and we are moving forward and if you oppose the direction we are moving you will get cut off and cast aside and like, I, I don't, this is my will and my bones. Like we need to be better. And there are going to be people who act aggressive. This is how you become better, guys. You say F the Amish, F the Turks, F the, the Jews, like F, you know, every group that's not me. ...against our attempt to like achieve a higher race. And we need to view them as enemies and not view them as like, our, you know, fellow whites or whatever. Yeah. yeah, come on, guys. You just, you just, your problem is you just don't hate the Amish enough. I mean, you're a bunch of wimps, apparently. Right. But here's the thing. Most people out there, most white people, because of multiculturalism, those arguments about racialism in which we, you know, like, say, races other races are inferior or whatever it is the the people the kind of people that we want in our in our in our future not the kind that richard talked about the margins of the green types the backwards types those the backwards types are going to be more racist a low brow kind of in, unsophisticated undifferentiated racism the people yeah. we want the educated types are going to be people who are in contact with very bright people of other races I mean, if educated types could just hear about F the Amish and F the Turks, they would be so inspired that they'd totally sign on with Apolloism. They're going to point to examples in their own life. And yeah, yes, it's like, um, what is it? An anecdotal. Like, yeah, I have a Blackford who's pretty smart. Like, of course. But we have to work with the system that we have now, not in ideals. We have to work in the reality that exists today, which is a multicultural one, where we have other people who have relationships, who have friends, who have lovers even, of other races and we have to work with what we have okay you know so we, we have to present a, a vision of the future it's not conservatism that, that is it's, that is absolutely conservatism that it's, is absolutely conservatism the yes, United Nations. yeah it's 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 globalism right so the future of humanity of the earth is global it's going to encompass all people and so unless you're going to go full exto posting right like Oh, once we're in power, we're going to just like exterminate Africa, right? Like, unless you're willing to go that far, then we're going to have to deal with other races at some point anyway. Might as well deal with it now. Might as well confront it now and incorporate that into our vision in a positive way. That way we have a chance at actually, I don't know, making an argument that stands, uh, you know, stands up to scrutiny <laughs> and not just like, oh, this is like dumb, like internet white nerd shit. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, that...
some of that there might be some truth to it i mean obviously we don't want marjorie taylor greens or you know people like that but a lot of what you're saying it to me is just like we're just gonna go the good person route like yeah i'm not okay, buying let me add, i'm not buying what you're add, putting out there that, that's fine that's fine we can have disagreements here but let me let me add something to this i mean we this is one of the reasons certainly not the only one but one of the reasons i am attracted to apolloism uh, is that like when you are a white nationalist there there is a way in which you kind of cut yourself off from any even even diplomatic but but kind of productive like discussion with other peoples and races and the brilliance of like the roman system is that you can recognize people through expanding the pantheon you know like you we would be able to have a discussion with an asian who we can recognize and recognize their value and like deal with them and learn from them and teach them and i i think just like pure nationalism even in a happy homelands variety it, it is about like you're you're isolating yourself from the world and i i just don't think that's possible or desirable and so like we i mean again uh craig you know this because you were on the call like you know if if an asian person wants to be an app an apolloist or an apollonian however whatever term we come up with yeah they can be yeah they can be and like we we also know that like apollo is about us and it's about our ideals but like we, we i don't know we we just can't like shut ourselves off richard what a, what a powerful powerful vision for humanity my god i don't know about you but i know i'm really inspired all right let's see what taka has to say so things are going so poorly for the White House that even NBC News can no longer ignore it. Vote for Biden. He's an adult. <laughs> Not anymore. Here's the line for NBC. Quote, Biden is rattled by his sinking approval ratings. There are signs of managerial breakdowns at the White House. NBC also reports that Biden is furious that his aides keep walking back his demented comments. Quote, Biden was furious. His remarks were being seen as unreliable. <laughs> I wonder why as he repeatedly declares war on various countries. And that's just the beginning. Politico, and no publication is sucked up to Biden harder than Politico, but Politico is reporting that the Biden White House is awash in malignant white supremacy. Are you surprised? Not really, of course. Quote, at least 21 black staffers have left the Biden White House since late last year or are planning to leave soon. Now, sources blame the, quote, work environment, in other words, the racism of the Biden administration. So things have gotten very bad for Joe Biden, both public facing and internally. What are they doing about it? Well, they broke glass in case of emergency and invited a Korean pop group to speak at the White House today. Watch. I were BTS, and it is a great honor to be invited to the White House today to discuss the important issues of anti-Asian hate crimes, Asian inclusion, and diversity. 
Yeah, so we got a Korean pop group to discuss anti-Asian hate crimes in the United States. Okay, good job, guys. As Noah Pollack points out, quote, the Biden administration is defending anti-Asian racial discrimination in university admissions in a case before the Supreme Court in case you wanted to compare substance versus PR. It's not even very good PR. And this is not even the first time the Biden administration has done something like this. Last August, they invited a TikTok star to the White House because that'll make things better. Hi, my name is Cooper, and this is a day in my life as a White House intern. We did a joke. <laughs> hey, everyone. Vogue. Hey, Jenny. I booked you a nail appointment, love. Yeah, I didn't tell you to do that. It's called Initiative. <laughs> Hi, White House. This is Cooper. Mm, I don't think so. Yep. They hate the country, trying to degrade it, and it's working. But the headline here is that the white supremacy in the Biden White House is so intense, 21 black staffers, can there be more than 21 total? Not a huge staff at the White House. 21 black staffers have fled. Speaking of the new Jim Crow, Candace Owens is the founder of the charity Blexit. She's probably not surprised by this. She joins us tonight. Candace, are you surprised at the racism, the white supremacy? Gosh, I wonder what Candace Owens has to say. Gosh, I, I have to summon all my resources, all my strength, like all the push-ups and pull-ups I've been doing, the hundreds of miles that I've been walking and biking. I have to summon it all up right now to to force myself to turn away from listening to Candace Owens because I don't want her to radicalize me like she did to Brandon Tarrant. I saw what Candace Owens did to Brandon Tarrant. And I don't want Candace to radicalize me like that, so I must shut my ears so I don't listen to any more Candace Owens because she has such powerful charisma that uh, I don't want to get radicalized. I must force myself to just use Tucker Carlson moderately, all right, just for entertainment purposes. I don't want to be taking it too seriously. I want to stay calm about all this. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, the courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Christopher Cordwell says the war in Ukraine may be impossible to stop, and the U.S. deserves much of the blame. What? So in the Paris Daily Le Figaro this month, Henry Guano, a top advisor to Nicolas Sarkozy when he was president of France, warned that Europe's countries under the short-sighted leadership of the United States were sleepwalking into war with Russia. Mr. Guano was borrowing a metaphor that the historian Christopher Clark used to describe the origins of World War I. Naturally, Mr. Guano understands that Russia is most directly to blame for the present conflict in Ukraine. It was Russia that massed its troops on the frontier last fall and winter and began the shelling and killing on February 24. But the United States has helped turn this tragic, local, and ambiguous conflict into a potential world conflagration. By misunderstanding the war's logics, logic, the West, led by the Biden administration, is giving the conflict a momentum that may be impossible to stop. So in 2014, the United States backed an uprising in its final stages, a violent uprising against the legitimately elected Ukrainian government, which was pro-Russian. Now, yes, that government was corrupt. Every Ukrainian government has been corrupt. So Russia, in turn, annexed Crimea. Now, one can argue about Russia's claims of Crimea, but Russians take them seriously. Hundreds of thousands of Russians died defending the Crimean city of Sevastopol from European forces during two sieges, one during the Crimean War and one during World War II. So recent years, Russia's control of the Crimea has provided a stable regional environment. 
So do you want to just let the sleeping dogs lie? No, the United States never accepted the arrangement. So on November 10, 2021, the United States and Ukraine signed a charter on strategic partnership. The court for Ukraine to join NATO condemned ongoing Russian aggression and affirmed an unwavering commitment to the reintegration of Crimea into Ukraine. I don't know about you, but I'm willing to die so that we could reintegrate Crimea into Ukraine. So this charter convinced Russia that it must attack or be attacked. It's the ineluctable process of 1914 in all of its purifying, terrifying purity. So this is the war that President Vladimir Putin has claimed to be fighting. So Putin said at Russia's annual Victory Day Parade, May 9, there were constant supplies of the most modern military equipment, referring to the foreign army of Ukraine. The danger was growing every day. Now, Western news reports belittled him, but he was right. Right? Ukraine had barely any military in 2014. Then the United States started arming and training Ukraine's military. Modern hardware began flowing during the Trump administration, and then Biden really ramped up. Now the country is armed to the teeth. Since 2018, Ukraine has received U.S.-built Javelin anti-tank missiles, Czech artillery, Turkish drones, and other NATO weaponry. The United States and Canada have sent up-to-date British-designed M777 howitzers that fire GPS-guided Excalibur shells. President Biden just signed into law a $40 billion military aid package. So in this light, mockery of Russia's battlefield performance is misplaced. Right? Russia is not being stymied by a plucky agricultural country a third its size. Russia is hoarding its own against NATO's advanced economic, cyber, and battlefield weapons. So the United States is trying to maintain the fiction that arming one's allies is not the same as participating in combat. Well, in the information age, this distinction is more and more artificial. The United States is providing intelligence and then boasting about providing the intelligence used to kill Russian generals. The United States provided the intelligence that helped sink the Russian Black Sea missile cruiser, the Moskva, right? An incident in which 40 Russian seamen were killed. United States is playing an even more direct role. There are thousands of foreign fighters in Ukraine. Many of them come from the United States. Right? Many of them come from being in the Marines. So it's pretty easy to cross the line between being a weapon supplier and being a combatant. It's easy to cross the line from waging a proxy war to waging a secret war. So fighting this war as we are, risks, we risk being drawn into full involvement by just the force of moral reasoning. American officials justify exporting weaponry. Look, it's so powerful, it's, it's going to dissuade Russian aggression. This money is going to buy peace. But should these bigger guns fail to dissuade aggression, they will lead to bigger wars. So even if we don't accept Putin's claims that America's arming of Ukraine is the reason the war happened in the first place, and I think it is a substantial reason, it is certainly the reason the war has taken the kinetic, explosive, and deadly form it has. We have given the Ukrainians cause to believe that they can prevail in a war of escalation. Thousands of Ukrainians have died who would not have died if the United States had not armed them and trained them. So now, because thousands of Ukrainians have died, this creates among American policymakers a sense of moral and political obligation to stay the course, to escalate the conflict, to match any excess. Right? The United States is inclined to escalate in March, Joe Biden invoked God before insisting that Putin cannot remain in power. In April, Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin explained that the U.S. seeks to see Russia weakened. Look, these 
Winston Churchill impersonations are very exciting, noted Noam Chomsky. You know, all these heroic pronouncements, wow. But what they translate into is destroy Ukraine. We're fighting to the last dead Ukrainian. Then Joe Biden suggests that Vladimir Putin be tried for war crimes. I mean, this is consummate irresponsibility. Right? The charge is so serious that once leveled, it discourages restraint because a leader who commits one atrocity is no less a war criminal than one who commits a thousand. So the whole effect is to foreclose any recourse to peace. I have been stunned by the Biden administration's lack of interest in genuine peace with Russia, between Russia and Ukraine. Now, Russia has a land bridge to Crimea. We're kind of at a draw at moment. But if this war doesn't end soon, its dangers will increase. And if the war goes on another two months, Henry Kissinger warned last week, it will create upheavals and tensions that will not be easy to overcome. Right, to make concessions to Russia, you might argue, is submitting to aggression. To make no concessions would be submitting to insanity. The United States is making no concessions because that would be to lose space. There's an election coming. So the administration is closing off avenues of negotiation and working to intensify the war. We're in it to win it. And uh, the president of Ukraine warned in an address to students this month, the bloodiest days of the war are still to come. Everyone, hello from Colorado. I am uh, transmitting here from the same spot that I did about three days ago when we had two feet of snow, and today there is um, somewhat less uh, crazy world. Uh, today I wanted to talk about another kind of crazy, uh, what's going on between the Chinese and the Taiwanese in light of the Ukraine war. Now, a lot of folks were worried just before the Russians moved, and honestly, just in the first couple of days of the war as well, that uh, the master plan was that the Russians would go for Ukraine and the Chinese would go for Taiwan at more or less the same time, and then the United States would just kind of be left uh, unable to intervene in both. Now, clearly things have not broken that way, and I think it's worth discussing why. Now, the single biggest issue is that the assumptions that the Chinese government has made since the 1950s, when we first have the split between the mainland and Taiwan, has proven to be completely false. Every single assumption that the Chinese have made is wrong. Now, the first big one was the idea that the war would be quick, that the Russians could provide a template that you can just kind of roll in there and take over a country in no time at all. Well, clearly that is not how this has gone. And while I still have very huge concerns about the Ukrainians' ability to win this war, the point is it takes time. And in the case of Taiwan, you're talking about a country that has been preparing for a mainland invasion for 60 years. Now, you can all say that the Ukrainians have overperformed, and they absolutely have. But Ukraine has only really existed as a functional country since the Donbass War back in 2014. Taiwan has a lot more nationalism under its belt. And, oh yeah, it's an island. They've got a moat. So any meaningful conflict where the Chinese actually go for Taiwan means they would have to surge all of their forces into things like fishing boats and just make a mad dash for it. You'd be talking hundreds of thousands of deaths from ships getting blown up in the Taiwan Strait. The alternative, of course, is to do a slow mobilization like the Russians did for Ukraine. But Taiwan's first nuclear power reactor is, was built 40 years ago, and the Taiwanese, if they had notice, would absolutely be able to bring a few nukes to the party. So that's not an option. Uh, the second big idea is that the Chinese would be able to take over the semiconductor sector within Taiwan and then suddenly leapfrog to become the most powerful semiconductor country in the world. Yeah, that's just stupid. Uh, two things wrong there. Number one, the Chinese are not very good at semiconductors. They only make the very, very low-end bargain basement stuff. Uh, the things that go into like the Internet of Things, uh, the chips that go into like a climate control system or a smart light bulb are about as good as the Chinese are able to do. They don't have the technical skills. They don't have the workforce. They don't have the command of the supply chain. And oh yeah, all the designs for Taiwan chips 
They come from Japan and the United States, which brings us to the third assumption that is incorrect. The idea that China could just impose a done deal on the rest of the world and make everyone just suck it up and take it. Yeah, that, that one's false too. Uh, not only would be a, a fight for Taiwan be at least as bad for the Chinese as a fight uh, as the Russian fight for Ukraine, we now know that the West actually has some cultural gumption again. If you were to take the sanctions that the West has put on Russia and put them on China, it would be catastrophic. Say what you will about the Russian economy, but it is a massive surplus producer and exporter of both foodstuffs and energy. China is the world's largest importer of all of that, especially for the inputs necessary to grow food. Which means that if we put the sanctions on China that we put on Russia, you would have a deindustrialization of the entire Chinese system in under a year. But I think what has terrified the Chinese most about the Ukraine war are the boycotts. The idea that private companies can change policy and challenge states, the idea that shareholders or board members or individual consumers can take a stance that will force a change in corporate policy, that is so alien to the CCP's ideology and worldview that they still don't know how to process that. Everything about the Chinese economic system is based on mass imports, mass exports, tech transfer, and foreign markets. And without global foreign corporate cooperation with the Chinese economy, there is no Chinese economy. So every single assumption that the Chinese have been operating under since the 1950s, the Russians have proven false in less than three months. That may actually be one of the biggest outcomes of this war. China having to go completely back to the, the, the drawing board and start completely over. Because if they follow the plan as it exists right now, that's an excellent way to ensure that the Chinese system dies within a year. Okay, that's it for now. Until next time. Thanks, Peter. So I was talking to an academic friend about how we have all these media narratives that really come top down from from the experts. And uh, if you look at this book from 1921 from the Leaf Extension Institute, almost everything that you heard from mums about nutrition for, for the next 40 years is found in this book. Now, it's data-based, right? It probably comes from peer-reviewed studies, but uh, not necessarily true. So how did we get to this place where we have rules by experts? And, and what does that mean? It means that you find with our institutions, they're increasingly emphasizing procedure. So you get public access, you get the creation of structured discussions, but it's public access as performance, not, not uh, the public getting real access to make a difference in the governance of their lives. So you'll find with the European Union and other institutions, you get, get pleas for greater openness and more emphasis on process and uh, more considerations of legitimacy, right? We, we need greater procedural and process legitimation Right, to make the, the institution seem more representative of the people. So there's this double democratic mandate throughout the European Union. You've got individual member states, and you've got the EU, and uh, both of them are not able to act effectively, right? For example, on food safety uh, or to improve quality of life, deal with, deal with crime and immigration, right? So... A lot of this stuff goes back to national governments and uh, Brussels gets blamed by member states. So people really don't know where to turn, which institutions can they turn to to address their concerns. So we used to have a discussing class. That was a class that would make the decisions that run our lives. Now the, uh, the discussing class is really the class of the experts, right? So first of all, you had the the liberal public who could vote for their representatives who could then make the rules but that was too unwieldy the people didn't vote the right way 
after all the people voted for hitler so therefore we have to take power away from the people and shift it to the discussing class and to the experts and we need procedures guys to review expertise right we need to scrutinize those who possess knowledge we need extended peer review we need new surrogates for the public and for the people we need a new place for discussion in place of the lost public discussion of classical liberalism right we need expertise that comes with a legitimacy so majoritarianism the, the will of the people not generally compatible with the development and the use of experts so Populism means that the people are basically right. Pluralism seeks to divide the people into all different spheres of groups so that the elite can then ally with one sphere or another to retain control. So right now in America, you have the elites allying with the, the upper class and the lower classes against the middle class. So the Republicans generally represent the middle classes. The party of the left represents the upper class and the lower class so majoritarian meaning the rule of the the mass majority of people right that's incompatible with rule by experts majoritarianism is incompatible with doctrines of pluralism and how wonderful diversity is because the more diversity and pluralism you have then the less of a general public you have because people are much more divided and the elites rule through divide and conquer now I'm not inherently opposed to elite rule or expert rule. Sometimes the elites and the experts are right, and sometimes the people are wrong. Sometimes the people are right, and the elite and the experts are wrong. I don't believe that truth lies with, inherently with the left or the right, the religious or the secular, the elite or the people. I don't, I don't believe the media always wrong. I don't believe the New York Times always lying. All right, I, I believe all information needs to be understood critically, asking who compiled this information, who developed this information, what purpose was it developed? What, what were the needs that it was addressing at the time? So you get all these procedures for citizens' juries and consensus conferences and focus groups and public hearings. This is big in Europe. It's kind of modeled on participatory forms in Danish technology panels. This is a novel way to try to get legitimation given that you're not operating on the basis of majoritarianism, meaning that the majority of the public gets to gets to rule now is this any meaningful notion of a public are these meaningfully public institutions no these are show institutions right there is the ceremony and then there are people who are actually getting things done so these are like consumer testing groups these are like focus groups right they assign that someone's listening even if the listening has no effect right that's the world we live in now so can there be a public without accountability to the public, right? And can there be a public and accountability to the public without direct mechanisms to enforce this accountability and without the possibility of learning from the use of power? Very difficult to see how. So when you get public members of participatory panels, they tend to defer to experts. So the only time that uh, the public can assess what's really going on with their elite is in the form of scandals and public relation failures. So bringing the public in for the ceremony may bring about an advance warning of public concerns, but it's not actual import 
or participation. So this is a regime that is parallel to democracy in the traditional sense. It's a surrogate for democracy. It provides substitutes for the absent public. So the public activities of the European Union are ever more ceremonial. So those who cannot adapt themselves to change fade into the ceremonial portion of the European Parliament and similar bodies. Effective power increasingly passes into the hands of the experts who have the power to preclude alternatives to their own rule. So the whole history of communism and uh, more left-wing versions of socialism is really ruled by elites that, that we know better than the marketplace. So it's ruled by experts. And they, yeah, they eliminated unemployment, but in the end they failed because their experts were not really expert. They were deluded by their ideology. Their ideology was false. So using, assessing, and organizing expertise is a problem for politics of all forms of politics. There's always a trust problem to solve. How do you judge the claims of an expert or of a body of experts with, response, with respect to their absolute or scientific or metaphysical validity? Who's going to judge the expert? So the Communist Party said, we are going to judge the experts. So you could look at the Soviet model as a scheme for organizing expertise. And uh, everything was bet on one order of things without any mechanisms for correction or counterbalancing the system in case of error. Errors like Chernobyl. Right, chapter 12 of this terrific book by Stephen Turner, The Politics of Expertise, talks about Max Weber's concept of expertise. So... Max Weber argued in 1919, the great German sociologist, that only by strict specialization can the scientific worker become fully conscious for once and perhaps never again in his lifetime that he has achieved something that will endure. So a definitive and good accomplishment is always a specialized accomplishment. Whoever lacks the capacity to put on blinders and to come up to the idea that the fate of his soul depends upon whether or not he makes the correct conjecture at this passage of the manuscript may as well stay away from science. So Max Weber, near the end of his life, studied the Confucian system because the Confucian system seems to represent the fulfillment of the fantasies of a lot of literary critics. It's a stable, functioning order ruled by the literati on the basis of their literary expertise. So according to Max Weber, he wanted to account for the relative unimportance of magic in the West in comparison to China. And he says this began with the Jews that it was the result of one of the peculiarities of the Jewish use of oracles, which is testified to in the Torah, the, the Pentateuch, which resulted in the, the absence of magic and the development of rational methods. So the Levitical oracle requires a question that has to be put to God, and it has to be answered yes or no. So everything depended on how the question was phrased. So the Levite had to acquire a rational method to express problems to be placed before God, in a form permitting answers of yea or nay when the Urim or the Thummim would light up on his breastplate. So the complicated preliminary questions had to be settled before they could be placed before God, and uh, this arrangement hardly left anything to be determined by the oracle. So the oracle became less and less important. Let me scroll through chapter 12 here, Stephen Turner. 
politics of expertise. Now we get on to, oh, part four. This is a barn burner. It's called Collective Heuristics Expertise as a System. Is that not about the most compelling title you've ever seen? So one of the common claims that you, we've been getting the last 30 years is that liberal democracy needs to be abolished to save the human race in the face of global warming. So press three if we need to abolish democracy to save the human race in the face of global warming. Right. If you want to really tackle the problem of global warming, you need more and more rule by experts. You can't trust the ordinary people to come up with a coherent strategy for dealing with something as complicated as global warming. So have you heard about the Homestake Experiment? It was a famous experiment in the 1960s with, developed with the aim of empirically testing some basic physical ideas about solar neutrinos. So the experiment actually began in 1970, and the best physics of the time predicted that solar neutrinos would pass through the Earth at a particular rate. But no one had ever tested this. So Homestake was an attempt to test this. It was conducted at the bottom of an abandoned gold mine in South Dakota. They built a huge vat, filled it with perchloroethylene, a chemical used in dry cleaning. The chlorine atoms were the means of detection. So when a solar neutrino collided with a chlorine atom, it produced a radioactive isotope of argon, which could then be extracted by bubbling helium through the vat and used to estimate the number of neutrinos that had been captured. So it was believed at this time that this would be a crucial experiment, a test not only about ideas regarding solar neutrinos, but the whole image of the world provided by particle physics. The results, however, were incomprehensible. The VAT did detect the argon, a byproduct, but it was detected at a rate far below what was predicted. Something was right, something was wrong. Neutrinos were detected, but something had gone very seriously wrong. But what? So the experiment depended on a reasonably well-understood technology of collection, with an understanding of physical chemistry. The estimates were based on this stable knowledge, but just didn't work out. And that's how much of science is. So most of the explanations by the most distinguished physicists trying to account for the low solar neutrino flux were just completely bogus. They now seem fanciful. But for decades, these explanations were treated as sufficient grounds to just dismiss the experiment entirely. If reality doesn't measure up to your theories, then you have to dismiss reality. So the whole reaction the scientific community is telling, they venerated the explanations by the most distinguished physicists. They denigrated reality. Right, this Homestake experiment was one of the highest profiled, most anticipated experiments in the history of science. So... The scientific community could not come up with compelling explanations for the results for decades. And so how did the scientific community react? It chose to ignore the results it didn't like that were uncomfortable for it and to accept as plausible explanations, explanations that were groundless. But at least the explanations conserved the standard model of the sun and the particle physics behind it. So rather than treating the results as a major anomaly that needed to be addressed and accounted for, the community lost interest in the results. Scientific community lost interest in reality. So what's a tightly coupled system? That's when there's a time constraint, right? When there are very short lags between events in the system. So when you have a tightly coupled system with short lags between events in the system, there is little time to make corrections other than those provided by routines, backup systems, and standard operating procedures. 
So the reason the classical model of science worked so well in correcting errors was that it had time. It was time for conjectures to be refuted, for alternative ideas to develop, and to get support for new findings. Classical model supplied a motivation to do these things and allowed for sufficient independence between sources of support to allow scientists the freedom to follow their hunches about what is wrong. Now, in tightly coupled science, right, that doesn't happen. Tightly coupled science is policy-oriented science. It is things like climate science. Right? This type of science is time-limited, usually by the demands of the decisions that need to be made or by the desires of the participating scientists to have an impact on public policy. So policy-oriented science is done by an artificially created community of scientists who share particular political and policy concerns, who then make funding decisions about one another's work and are bound up with one another in many other ways, so they can't afford to fall out with each other or be too critical of each other. This is climate science community. So policy-oriented science truncates the processes of science to produce a needed consensus in a short time. In a situation where there are large gaps between the evidence and the decisions, the policies, the practices, and the politics that these scientists want to guide. So climate science, you get A, large-scale funding initiatives tar targeted at the production of knowledge relevant to the political concerns. And you get B, specific requirements for describing and identifying impacts in the text of proposal themselves. So you get these coupling devices they assure that the research is coupled closely to the rest of the scientific system as well as to public goals. Public goals, the same kind of goals that these institutions, these scientists, these consensus conferences and commissions are obsessed with. So when you couple research to impact, it's not voluntary. Right? And the whole effect of this tight coupling is to create a tightly coupled knowledge production system and the system becomes more and more tightly coupled, it becomes increasingly susceptible to risks, including knowledge risks, which are always characteristic of tightly coupled systems. And I think also... Richard, Richard let me ask you this. I, 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 I concur with what Richard has said. Uh, I think he may have dropped... Uh, potentially closer to Apolloism than to Stumptish. Is that a fair? I, I, well, yes, but at the same time, it's right, like, that's a great think... question to Richard, and then you can talk, and then Ivan. Is is Richard here? Yeah, yeah, I'm here. Here. yeah. yeah. But it's it's like, I mean, maybe that's exceptionally pr presumptuous, but I can kind of see, you know, Jason being a a subscriber to Apolloism. I don't know if he is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Who we who we are without borders? Who a person is without borders is more important than his demographic situation or his political or geographic. And Lapodius makes a great point. If politicians are able to judge the validity of experts, doesn't that make the politicians the true experts? Therefore, the experts are not needed. Territory. Because when, when the first people who went into space were launched on their rockets, they were white men. Did they stop being white once they went into outer space, once they left the atmosphere? Were they still white or not? And that's the problem I have with white nationalists is, can you be white off of the planet or outside of your own nation? Because if their identity is all about being nationalist, what will they well, be in space? To me, yeah. the whitest thing ever is is like basically like wanting to establish order and work with what we have and just like figure out like solutions to problems. Like that is, if you're talking about like, what does whiteness mean to me? This is what we've been doing for thousands of years. Let's continue doing that, you know? And at the end of the day, 
it's like, yes, as time goes on, we're going to be changing. Things are always going to change. Okay, back to Stephen Turner. Climate science is the field today that's the most visible example of a policy-oriented science field that is tightly coupled. Right, the history of the field bears this out. Right, You get the slow development of the subject under the conditions of loosely coupled science. So you get money to pursue key ideas such as the steady accumulation of CO2, carbon in the atmosphere. This money was scarce. The interested scientists were able to do research on these topics only by accident. The generous military funding of science in the 1950s provided some key elements. So geophysical research generally is a platform science. It requires big instruments, requires extensive lobbying by researchers to fund them. So only when public fears are aroused and the conservation movement began to pick up on the problem of global warming, did the money begin to flow freely to study climate science. And at the core of climate science is climate modeling. And the materials that go into these models come from a wide variety of scientific fields. So the climate prediction outputs of these models is sensitive to assumptions, to parameters, to small variations of inputs and so forth. So there's been a long history of failure to make even plausible predictions, such as the models that predicted a doubling of carbon dioxide would produce a rise in global temperatures of 10 degrees Celsius or higher, as well as the fiasco of the predicted new ice age. So many of these rudimentary models were wildly wrong, but they were presented as quite serious policy predictions at the time by scientists such as Stephen Schneider, who are still active and still aggressively promoting the policy relevance of their current views. So the, the Whiggish perspective on these models is that they began as flawed theories and that prompted people to make better ones. So the Whiggish view is a simple calculation can produce a catastrophic outcome, and uh, this, is, this is a disturbing discovery. So climate, as is clear from the outset, is a staggeringly intricate complex of interactions and feedbacks among many global forces, and even relatively simple phenomena such as the doldrums in the tropical seas defy explanation. So climate science does not operate as a normal scientific discipline does. Social structure is not cohesive, a community in one specialty cannot check the work of researchers in another branch of the science, but they must accept their word for what is valid. So the study of climate change is an extreme example. Researchers cannot isolate meteorology from solar physics, pollution studies from computer science, oceanography from glacier ice chemistry, and so forth. The range of journals they cite is broad. The sprawl is inevitable. The complexity imposes difficulties on those who try to reach out and find solid conclusions about climate change. So to do work on climate change, you have to accept as divine truth the work of other academic specialties that you don't even understand. So you have to depend on models that are made up. They, they fit the actual climate very roughly only because they've been laboriously tuned to match it by adjusting a wide variety of arbitrary parameters. Now, generating money for this field depends on politics, right? How do you get funded? Right? How do you meet your self-interest? How do you get your emotions tickled? Right? By developing this political cause of promoting action on climate change. So this is very different from the classical model of science. Now, believers in climate change will say, well, waiting for a sure answer would mean you know, waiting for disaster. When we're faced with a new disease or an armed invasion, we do not put off decisions until more research is done. 
we act using the best guidelines available. So in the absence of ordinary disciplinary controls, we must accept the claims of climate science on what basis? On feeling. Feeling for where scientific claims are reliable and where they are shaky? Oh, come on, guys. If you can test climate science, you're either ignorant or you're just so committed to your viewpoint you'll seize any excuse to deny the danger that confronts us. Now, the climate science community will tell us the spirit of fact-gathering, rational discussion, tolerance of dissent, and negotiation of an evolving consensus has characterized the climate science community for decades. But we know that's not true, because we know what happened when we got a release of emails from the University of East Anglia's Climatic Research Unit. Right? Facts were mishandled and suppressed. Data, when inconvenient, was withheld and lost. Peer review was manipulated. Major effort was made to discredit those who questioned the consensus. Right, this is corruption of science. So we have these very common limitations of scientists. They tend to groupthink. They are prone to their hobby horses. They tend to overrate the importance of their own disciplinary concerns. Now, chapter 15, expertise in post-normal science. So climate science is post-normal science. So what are climate scientists to do? People are skeptical about their claims that climate scientists are presenting as authoritative, right? The consensus is strong, guys. Opponents of climate science are paid off. They're acting on behalf of special interests. Policymakers and politicians should just accept the science and act accordingly. Why aren't they doing so? What should the strategy of climate scientists be in the face of reluctance to accept the results of climate science? This is science, guys. What's, what's a scientist to do when you're not listening to him, when, when you're not funding him? What the heck is going on here? And that's just the way it is. We don't, we don't live on the map. We draw the maps. But it's, it's like but this idea, like, like what Richard was talking about with the, with the um, with the Amish people, it's like, those people are a historical, like, well, they're like a museum people, you know? That's like what we don't want to be. Exactly. Right, but you can do both. This, I think this is my point of contention here, is that you can move forward and do it white, do it Aryan, and, and keep your race what it is now into the future. I don't think you can. Okay, I mean, well, we're, like, we're talking okay, about time here. We're, deep we're just going to have to agree and disagree here. then. Because like, my conception about, I, is different than yours. I, I, in, in a million years, like for, for the majority of human history, as it's going to continue, there will not be white people. White people uh, will J not Jason, exist. Jason, will, will Apollo suffer? Yes, that is the question. Will Apollo suffer? So should the public defer to shaky post-normal science? Guys, if you don't accept the consensus, if our politicians don't accept the consensus of climate science, you're endangering the earth. So the whole system of liberal democracy needs to be abolished or radically reformed. You need to suppress speech that is contrary to climate science. Right? We need to defer to the climate science consensus. You can't allow each person to decide. You can't allow each person to assess the credibility of the scientists. Right. This is science. It's, it's got a consensus. 
So how do we assess scientific regimes? Does climate science deserve to be treated with this kind of deference? Or does climate science have features that make it less deserving of deference? Right, when do we defer to the experts? So think about Hiroshima. Many of the scientists who developed the nuclear weapon were strongly opposed to actually using it on Japan. Now, was it the scientists' business to control the products of their work? Were they responsible for what politicians did with it? Now, one lesson of this episode is that nuclear physicists are not experts on international affairs, on security strategy, and not good judges of their Soviet counterparts. So Western scientists were used by a highly sophisticated KGB, and they deluded themselves into thinking they were speaking freely as scientist to scientist in their international exchanges. This was scientific hubris. They did have technical competence about one aspect of the complex question of nuclear strategy and the world peace, but this did not mean they were competent to judge the limits or the relevance of their competence. So Bernard Lovell, Bernard Lavelle was the father of radio astronomy. He was a Nobel laureate, and he fought very hard against funding for DNA research in the 1950s after the discovery of DNA. On what grounds? That it was overrated in importance and without practical significance. Now, was this merely cynical and self-serving? No. Bernard Lovell's inability to grasp a different topic is a characteristic feature of specialized scientists of the normal science era. This pervasive inability, a lack of genuine competence in fields outside his own, has many bad consequences for the whole era of big science that has developed into post-normal science. So Bernard Lavelle overreached his competence in attacking DNA research, and this is a kind of overreach that is endemic to scientific decision-making. So competence becomes a larger issue when there is no competition, when a single choice is made or needs to be made through a direct process that involves no market, no rivalry, or no alternative. Who is competent to make decisions and who is competent to judge their own competence? So this kind of problem is central to the Dismissal of Robert Oppenheimer and the decision to build the H-bomb, an idea promoted by Edward Teller. It's a complicated story. Robert Oppenheimer was the father of the A-bomb. He was a revered physicist, a master scientific manager, the most authoritative voice on weapons questions in 1945-46. He was concerned in the aftermath of the use of the atomic bomb with the political and administrative side of atomic research. His writings were closely allied to the autonomy of science movement. So he stressed the craft character of science, the distinction between science and technology, and the need for atomic science to proceed in an open academic setting. So he backed proposals for the internationalization of control over nuclear energy. And he represented the science to and the scientific community to decision makers. Now, his fall was a central event in the developing relation of science to the state. In 1953, he was accused of being an agent of the Soviet Union and his security clearance was stripped. He tried to clear his name. He appealed to the Atomic Energy Commission's Personal Security Board. They heard and examined allegations that Robert Oppenheimer had obstructed the development of the H-bomb. Now, the evidence was scant and confusing. In most aspects, Oppenheimer seems to have merely done what scientists normally do to resist novel approaches and to apply informed skepticism to Edward Teller's ideas, but what fatally undermined Robert Oppenheimer was the admission that he had lied 
in past security interviews. So this raised questions about his integrity. Now, in normal science, integrity is not a big concern. Fraud was rare. And even eccentric characters have had to conform to social controls on experiments because experiments were public acts and open to scrutiny. But in the new regime, integrity was an issue. Scientists were called upon not merely to accept or reject new ideas as individuals, but to exercise direct authority over the development of an investment in ideas. So in this context, skepticism and resistance, rather than being meritorious, part of a testing mechanism for new ideas, could undermine the testing mechanism and the use of rivalry as a counterbalance to groupthink. So Edward Teller was the father of the H-bomb, hydrogen bomb, and he'd been obsessed with the idea of thermonuclear energy since 1940. He honed his ideas throughout the Manhattan Project. His ideas turned out to be correct. So Robert Oppenheimer was a master at the use of committees and scientific discussions. He was persuasive, sharp, authoritative, and respected. By contrast, Edward Teller emphasized the need for rivalry. He promoted the idea of a second laboratory, preferably located at a university, but within the system of national laboratories, to enable these different laboratories to compete, to overcome the risk of having research in an area governed by the set ideas of one lab and its bureaucracy. So he wanted competition. So the issue with Oppenheimer was it is clear many scientists objected to the development of the H-bomb on moral and political grounds. So their moral scruples led them to make technical objections to the development of the H-bomb. So they obstructed the development of the H-bomb for politically motivated reasons. Now, you'd expect to have technical and moral questions divided by a firewall, right? Decision makers depend on the ability of scientists to be unbiased, to be disinterested. Now, people can usually spot self-interest, but recognizing political motivations in this context was much more difficult to find. So these issues rose at all stages in the development of the H-bomb. Gathering information was conditional on a decision to make and test bombs, to invest the resources to run calculations, to run simulations, yet to process the knowledge through discussion, yet to present technical papers and proposals, yet to develop the weapons by aggregating scientific and technical knowledge. And then the funders, the politicians, had to assess the technical advice given to them by many different people. Then you had to make a decision to produce and deploy the bomb based on political and military considerations. So in each case, a direct means, a committee decision was substituted for the free acceptance or rejection of ideas over time, which is normally characteristic of science. So the urgency justified it, the goal justified it. So the very hint that a scientist was failing to observe the distinction between the technical and the moral was enough to disqualify his advice. So Robert Oppenheimer, as Edward Teller pointed out, was not an engineer, and the technical issues were way beyond his competence. It would have been far better for him personally to have recognized this and not intervene in the process. But the general question of the technical feasibility of the project was one about which nobody was an expert. Like all complex projects, it involved knowledge from a variety of technical specialties. This is just a, you know, 
Apolloism, this is a religion we're making up to help ourselves. It's right. not he's a willy, 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 he's double. Is this imagine he's looking down upon us. No, it's not a imagine return. Imagine he's even looking Mark, down upon us. Will he suffer? Even, even, Mark, even, Mark, even Mark is, like I said, <laughs> we're not here. We're not reviving a religion here. We're creating one. We're letting the past inspire us, and we're borrowing symbols of the past to help us navigate the future. Yeah, right? this imagine, is why I'm imagine, you're, imagine you're asleep and dreaming. Will you dream, and you can't think when you're dreaming? Will Apollo suffer in your dream? In the future, will Apollo suffer? Will Apollo suffer in your dream? That's it. Bye-bye.